This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to focus a little bit on the clinical aspects of osteoarthritis, so I'll show you um, what I'm going to talk about. I don't have any disclosures, just so um, that's clear. So I'm going to talk a little bit about causes of osteoarthritis. You'll get some of these things also in both Thomas's and um, Sharmila's talk as well. But I'll try to identify some of the knowledge gaps that we have so that we can hopefully circle back at the end um, and answer questions you have and how they relate to some of the more um, innovative things that are being done in radiology. And I'm also going to talk about treatment options. And I'm going to give an overview of what's really sort of approved therapy for osteoarthritis. We'll have some time at the end to... um, for me to briefly go over some of the more promising different things that are on the horizon, and I'll certainly have time in the, in the question session afterwards as well. Um, just so you know, there's this sort of a, there's a, this idea of sort of the holy grail of osteoarthritis, which goes back to some of the knowledge gaps in terms of what causes it. Um, but the holy grail is really what can we use that's really truly disease-modifying for this. And I'll show you what I mean by that, hopefully. Okay, so what are some of the ways in which we think about the causes of osteoarthritis? So we tend to categorize it clinically in terms of whether it's primary or secondary. And it's almost easier to talk about what secondary means, so I'm going to start there. So secondary is when there's a very clear um, aberrancy either in the nature of the cartilage or things that have been done to the joint that have then precipitated aberrant mechanical forces in that joint that then go on to end in um, end-stage osteoarthritis or biomechanical failure. That's one sort of paradigm. Um, And some of the things, this is not a comprehensive list, but certainly some of the things are abnormalities that are congenital or acquired, so dysplasias, so abnormalities in the shape, for example, of the femoral head in the hip or the acetabulum in the hip, collagenopathies or um, problems with the actual structure of the cartilage in the joint are certainly things that can predispose to more accelerated osteoarthritis. Inflammatory arthritis, so many of the things we treat in rheumatology, like rheumatoid arthritis, that chronic inflammatory state can then lead to more accelerated cartilage um, and other components of the joint um, having biomechanical failure. And then things that are metabolic, so one example is iron metabolism um, conditions. So hemochromatosis, for example, where there's deposition of iron within structures in the joint that then compromise the biomechanical integrity of that joint. Primary osteoarthritis, on the other hand, is a little bit unclear. And you'll see from this very complicated sort of slide, well, not horribly complicated because this is a sophisticated group, but we really don't know where on this slide um, the first sort of injury or problem began. Um, We sort of think of it as a combination of local risk factors. So again, all components of the joint are at play here. So is there a muscle strength problem, a proprioception problem, um, something within just malalignment itself? And then are there more sort of global factors within that particular patient, systemic things like obesity, age? No one of these things seems to be completely um, an explanation for this, but we think it's probably an interplay between the two sides of this slide that then create a susceptible joint in a person who is possibly predisposed. And then that leads to incident OA. And I think this has been one of the challenges in terms of identifying people who are at risk for developing accelerated osteoarthritis or um, going back in a patient who has what's considered to be more end-stage osteoarthritis and trying to identify what really set it off. 
So it's very well understood that OA and the pathogenesis of OA really involves all components of the joint. So I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's not just about losing cartilage. It's There's biomechanical changes and, and adaptation within all structures in the joint, including bone, um, the meniscus to some extent, and certainly soft tissue structures, which is where things like physical therapy kind of come into play to try to um, make up for some of the biomechanical issues um, that have been compromised. So just as a quick slide to show you the changes that are happening in bone, especially subchondral bone. So this is just a histology slide. of On this side, you see very um, nice, normal cartilage here. And then this is a um, cartilage that's been more macerated. This is an osteoarthritic um, knee. So you can sort of see how broken up the articular cartilage is. And then um, just so you can sort of understand how close the relationship really is with subchondral bone and cartilage. And cartilage, of course, is avascular, relatively acellular, doesn't um, regenerate, um, but subchondral bone has a very um, important role in trying to sort of remediate or sort of buttress against some of the biomechanical forces that that um, osteoarthritic joint is facing. The meniscus is also increasingly has been recognized as a very important structure. And um, as you probably all know, it's these fibrocartilaginous sort of C-shaped structures that cushion the joint between the bones. And it's very clear that they play a very big role in uh, biomechanical force um, absorption because when you had patients who had total meniscectomies, even for partial tears and that kind of thing, they would go on very quickly to develop full osteoarthritis in that compartment of the joint. So this is another thing that we, we understand. And also the, the dark space in um, just a plain x-ray, much of that space is taken up by healthy meniscus. So when you see narrowing of that space, sometimes it's implying that there's a meniscal problem in addition to cartilaginous issues. Cartilage is very complicated. There are many components to it. Um, I put a picture of a rooster here because hyaluronic acid comes from, is a part of the actual comb of a rooster, um, but it's made up of components of water, collagen, like we talked about, um, and then these proteoglycan uh, molecules, which have a very important role to play in the distensibility and sort of tensile strength that cartilage has. We know also that there are models that are pretty well recognized for the role of inflammation in osteoarthritis. So again, there's a spectrum of inflammation in terms of the arthritic diseases that I see, where rheumatoid arthritis is extremely inflammatory, but osteoarthritis is not completely bland. And that's important because many of the treatments that are being tried or kind of um, piloted in patients with osteoarthritis are now trying to look at mechanisms of trying to decrease inflammation in these patients. There's certainly a strong genetic component. I won't get into all of it here. I think some of the best examples are in hand osteoarthritis and patients who develop um, what's known as DIP or the sort of tip-top joint of the fingers um, involved with osteoarthritis have a very strong genetic um, component to that. But also we think in um, hip osteoarthritis as well, there is certainly a genetic component to that as well, though it's it's a a fairly complicated um, association. Okay, so this is not to be facetious or, or um, pessimistic, but I think one of the things that's, that's frustrating about this disease is that we really want to find a cure for it, right? We want to identify the inciting event and be able to stop it. But right now, most of our treatments are aimed at treating it as if it's a chronic illness, which it, which it is, because many times when people are symptomatic, they've had it for some time and, and it's, it's progressed. So that's our bread and butter as it is right now. 
Okay, so just briefly going to give you a, a quick case example. Um, this is a 73-year-old woman with a history of severe knee DJD, or degenerative joint disease. She has a history of gastritis. She's responded to proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, in the past. She's not taking them right now. She's on low-dose aspirin. And this is a very common scenario. She wants to know what medications she can safely take regularly when in pain. So again, as you can see from this slide, we're really targeting controlling her pain and improving her function. We haven't found you know, something to give her to just make it go away. So I say this to point out, this is the sort of American College of Rheumatology guidelines and what's listed as approved treatment and sort of level of, of recommendation for osteoarthritis. And they really have pretty basic things on here. There's acetaminophen, there's oral NSAIDs like ibuprofen, um, topical NSAIDs like diclofenac gel, tramadol, which is more of a pain medication, um, and intraarticular cortisone injections. And I'm happy to talk more about that at the end, too, because there's some new um, data on that as well. Um, but that's kind of where we are. So really, they recommend using Tylenol first just because of the adverse effects of some of the other treatments. And they also recommend, if people can't be on a lot of these medications, to use pain control medications like Cymbalta or Duloxetine, which is also an antidepressant and also used for fibromyalgia treatment. So you kind of go from this very sophisticated model of a joint and many things happening to then really just treating pain. And there's a lot of toxicity, as some of you may know, associated with these medications. Uh, there's a lot of GI toxicity in patients who remain on um, NSAIDs over the age of 75, especially. Um, and we have to consider what risk category patients fall into when rec making recommendations about anti-inflammatory use on a chronic basis. Similarly, um, cardiovascular risk has been a concern in using some of these medications in the long run. The most... Um, public example and sort of well-publicized example was with Vioxx when it was on the market some time ago. Um, but there's some you know, cardiovascular risk or concern even with other NSAIDs as well. So a moderate-risk patient like this one who has you know, the use of aspirin, has a history of some gastritis, probably okay to use an anti-inflammatory as long as she's using a, a concomitant proton pump inhibitor at the same time. And this is about another modality we use, which is intraarticular cortisone injections for knee osteoarthritis. So cortisone does seem to work. It works for pain. It works for a short period of time. Again, in this meta-analysis of many studies, the, the most optimal effect was at about a month. It didn't last for long periods of time. And there was a recent JAMA study that came out that kind of talked a little bit about cartilage changes with cortisone. So again, I'm happy to talk about that afterwards. But we still use this. We use it judiciously. We don't think that there are really strong adverse effects. And this is kind of a mainstay to try to keep people in less pain and, and moving. Visco supplementation is things like hyaluronic acid. Um, there are many different versions of it, um, which I didn't list here, but um, there's mixed data and evidence for these. Um, and in fact, some of the orthopedic groups are going away from using these, depending on who you ask. Um, they do have benefit, especially on an anecdotal basis, and they seem to have very few adverse effects, although some patients do get an um, inflammatory reaction when they get the medications at times. Opioids. So opioids are also used sometimes when there's no other um, option. It's not an optimal 
choice uh, for, because of all the other attendant risks of addiction and other um, adverse side effects. But there is a role for it in patients who have nothing else um, at hand and maybe just waiting for their joint replacement surgery. So again, these are people who are probably fairly far along in terms of the osteoarthritis. Okay, so I, let's say I go back to this patient with all of these options, all of the adverse risk um, information. She says, no, nah, I don't want any of that. I think I'd like to try something that's natural and safe, which a lot of patients like to do. So then we want to talk a little bit about what role um, herbal medications or natural medications may, may play in trying to help osteoarthritis pain and improve function. So she wants to try Boswellia, for example. So, again, in the, in the limited scope of this talk, I, I won't go through all the data, there are open-label trials for some of these things, and I've listed some of the more commonly used herbal medications here, but um, there's really not strong data f that's at a level that's, that's strong enough to make a strong recommendation to use them. Many of them are probably safe if monitored, and sometimes they're very expensive. They're not FDA-regulated, so I kind of caution patients in, in accepting them as wholly natural when we don't always really know what's in them or if there's adulterated products in them. And there are some very good resources for getting guidance on how to take these medications. So the Osher Center, there's one here, but um, complementary medicine or integrative medicine centers often have good insight in terms of what formulations may be safer than others. Um, and I also use um, some of the online academic center websites, like there's some through the cancer centers in, in, in New York that I use as well. So again, I'm happy to talk about that at the end. Glucosamine chondroitin. So this is a shifting area. There's been some new studies that came out um, in the last couple of years that suggested that there may be some beneficial role to this, but at least as of now, the largest sort of randomized control trials haven't shown any definitive benefit on pretty strong endpoints for osteoarthritis, including functions of pain, uh, sorry, a joint function, joint structure, or pain. So again, anecdotally, some patients feel this really helps, but at least at the level of, of the strongest level of evidence, it's um, not there yet. So what else? So I think when you talk about non-pharmacologic treatment, um, really it's a combination of, of using modalities that can help with the joint as well as medications that help with the pain. So what does that mean? Well, so we're really talking about the things that many of you probably already know. So exercise is extremely important. The goal there is that you want to keep moving. The, the um, adage is move it or lose it. And that's really important in sort of enhancing natural lubrica lubrication of the joint, um, staying active. There's probably some role to central pain pathways as well in terms of how that um, movement can be beneficial there. So they, there's a lot of emphasis in the official recommendations for weight loss and walking and gentle movements like Tai Chi. Um, water therapy is also very restorative and beneficial for certain subgroups of patients, and there's some data to support that as well. And again, acupuncture is on there because we really looked sometimes to complementary modalities, especially when we want to try to minimize the effects of anti-inflammatories. So this is very similar to what I was outlining previously. Um, and then we have other very sort of biomechanically based therapies. So especially in patients who have what's called a varus deformity or are bow-legged, so they have joint space narrowing in the medial compartment of the knee, which is quite common, um, much of what we use is really shifting the center of, of the force that goes through that joint away from this sort of, um, this portion of the joint to a more neutral stance. 
And that's things that are um, things like braces, lateral wedges sometimes in the shoes, canes, flexible shoes. These are all sort of mechanical things that can sometimes help with readjusting the alignment of those forces. I put this on here because the cane is actually supposed to be used, as I'm sure many of you know, on the opposite side to where you have knee arthritis. And in this show, he used it on both sides and was inconsistent. So that's not a good model to use at all. But, um, but really, we're trying to get that knee especially back towards neutral alignment. So many other things have been tried in terms of this sort of holy grail for um, osteoarthritis treatment to try to modify the disease process. And most of these are failed stories. So there's methotrexate. We've sort of tried to borrow from more inflammatory types of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, without a lot of success thus far. Even biologics like uh, Enrol or Humira have been tried for this. Hydroxychloroquine is something else we use for rheumatoid arthritis and have not had so much success with as well. Strontium is another um, sort of trying to get it um, the, at, the, at the bone regeneration level, trying to um, inhibit some of the bone remodeling that can happen. And again, there were many side effects, and it just wasn't as promising. Tenezumab was something that was tried to sort of inhibit nerve um, pain and um, also has some, had some mixed results there. So regenerative medicine is, is sort of the new hot thing. Um, there are a lot of uh, groups that are using this. I think that uh, that includes things like uh, plasma-rich platelet infusion or prolotherapy, which is short for proliferative therapy. It's sort of the idea there being that you sort of induce an injury in that joint and then it takes over naturally and sort of heals itself. Um, stem cell therapies are sort of broad group of things that, um, as I'll explain, are, are really encompass many different ways of treating cells that come from a patient. And there's not a good standardized way of doing this, and there haven't been good standardized studies thus far to look at outcomes for these kinds of therapies. So while they're being marketed a lot and being used a lot, um, there's still, at least um, in our group and practice and the orthopedics group here, a lot of um, hesitation to recommend them wholeheartedly without better studies. I think they're promising, but I think the methodology needs to be more rigorous to really be able to assess them. So that's it. I'm happy to answer questions uh, at the end of this. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Thomas Link. I'm an imager. I'm a musculoskeletal radiologist, and my special expertise is in imaging of osteoarthritis and cartilage. And this is what I'm going to talk about over the next 20 minutes. We've heard by Krishna already how important and how ubiquitous osteoarthritis is. And if you look at the numbers, it's really impressive that in the U.S. approximately 27 million people suffer from osteoarthritis, and specifically those that are older patients that are older than 75, about 50% of these have osteoarthritis. Um, And this is really a big problem because there's um, long-term disability associated with this, and it has an incredible uh, importance in terms of uh, socioeconomic health, and it's a huge economical burden. Um, When you look at disability, and this is shown here, you see very nicely that in older patients, older than 55 years, that we have... um, Uh, musculoskeletal entities or diseases being the most frequent causes of disability. That's usually not so well known, but in fact, bone and joint disabilities are more frequent in older patients than, for example, heart, diabetes, or lung disorders. 
And as we grow older, our older patients, our older um, population wants to stay active. They want to continue to travel, to bicycle. And as we are getting osteoarthritis, it really limits, limits our mobility. And this is incredibly important to maintain that. And we're really actively seeking for methods to prevent osteoarthritis. And you have to look at this at the life expectancy that is going to rise. And, and again, we want these people also who are in their 80s also to stay active and participate in our social life. Okay, so what I'm going to start with is I'm going to talk about radiographs, and then we're going to talk about MRI and what it can do to visualize osteoarthritis. And finally, we're going to move on, and I'm going to share some of our research with, um, with you in terms of how prevention works and that it's actually relatively effective. And finally, I want to introduce you something brand new, which actually just came out today. We've developed a risk score, and the uh, publication just came out today, and I'm going to share that with you. So this is a standard radiograph. This is what I'm looking at all day long, basically. So this is your knee. This is the femur. This is the tibia. This is the fibula. And what you can nicely appreciate is that the joint space is actually quite normal. So this is really a normal knee. Now, radiographs give you as much information about your knee as this graph gives you about your car at home. So um, they're not super good, but they give some information. Okay, so this is now... As we progress, and interestingly, the diagnosis of osteoarthritis is still based, after 50 years, it's still based on radiographs of the knee. So again, we have our normal knee, we have our normal joint space, and what happens as the first step in osteoarthritis is that we get these little bony outgrowth or these bony spurs. And I'm showing how, you how they look like in the radiograph little tiny spurs here, but please keep in mind that at this time the joint space still looks maintained. So this is still a normal joint space, but osteophytes and bony outgrowth you see at the joint, very different compared to this normal joint. This is mild osteoarthritis, mild disease. So at that, that's a really early stage. At that time, most of the patients will not have a lot of pain or minimal pain. It's getting, however, more painful as we progress. And the progression includes, and Dr. Shaganti has already alluded to it, as the joint space narrows, as these structures that are within the joint space, such as the meniscus and the cartilage, are getting more and more narrow and get destroyed. And this is how your joint looks like. You see that there's joint space narrowing, that big osteophytes. So this is really very advanced, more advanced disease. It's still called moderate disease. It's not severe yet. It's called moderate disease because something is still in here which protects the joint and keeps it moving. Now, however, it can get worse and when the joint space is completely gone, and this is shown in this radiograph, then things are getting really bad. And this is a stage where there's not so much that can be done except for total joint replacement. So you see basically that we have bone on bone. There's nothing left here. So there's, no, there's only bone and nothing else within that joint space that could protect the bone, could protect the joint. 
So let's move on and talk a little bit after we went through radiographs. Let's talk a little bit about MR because we're going to hear more Dr. Majumdar's talking more about MRI because MR is really giving us a lot of additional information about the knee joint, which we don't have through radiographs. This is one of these MR scanners. I'm sure that you have seen these. And really the information, if we again think about our analogy with a car, information we get about the joint of your car is pretty much like that. So it's much more information. You have much more detail. You have a lot of really Intrig- I mean, really nice information. I'm showing this to you in these images where you have these beautiful images of the knee joint where you really see all the little details. You see these ligaments here, which keep the joint stable. You see these triangular little things. Dr. Shaganti has already mentioned. These are the menisci. And you have cartilage, which is shown nicely. You have little ostifites, beautifully shown. You see all the structures, the anatomy, exquisitively, much better than you see that in any standard radiograph. So let's talk about the structures we see in the MR and that are affected by osteoarthritis. So one of the most important ones, and again, Dr. Shaganti has already mentioned it, is the cartilage. The cartilage is like... And again, we're staying with the car. It's like the tire. Okay, this is really keeping us moving. This is inflated, like an inflated tire that makes the joint move. And you see this beautifully in the MR. You see these gray areas here. Um, Gray, uh, it's a little brighter than the adjacent bone, these gray areas. And you can beautifully evaluate these. And you can say, okay, this cartilage is really intact. This is already a little bit redundant, but we'll go over it very quickly. So hyaline cartilage is composed of collagen, proteoglycan, and chondrocytes, and it looks uh, it is very nicely shown in these MR images. And again, as degeneration occurs, as osteoarthritis develops, that cartilage gets destroyed. So we see big fissures, big loss of cartilage. The proteoclycan disappears. The collagen gets really very wavy and abnormal. Contracytes disappear. And this is the really the most important thing. If you think about bone fractures, bone fractures heal. They are, they are something which is eventually fine. You know, you have a fracture, the fracture heals, and then you're fine. Cartilage does not heal. Cartilage, once it's gone, it's gone, and it's gone forever. And this is something you always have to keep in mind, and this is why you have to protect it and why it's so critical to protect it, because cartilage that is lost does not regrow. This eventually will lead to osteoarthritis. Okay, here you have it side by side. Uh, You have a patient who has beautiful cartilage shown here, the cray area, And this one has zero cartilage. There's nothing left. This is how this looks like. And I think you get a good idea how this joint will work if it has a tire, which looks like this. Okay. So another important structure within the joint is the meniscus. And the meniscus is a shock absorber. It really is. And Krishna, you've nicely said, okay, it's like a cushion. It cushions the joint. It's it's like in your car again. I'm staying with the cars again. It's like your shock, shock absorber in the car. And it really prevents the cartilage from getting eroded. So it's very important to prevent osteoarthritis. This is the function of it. 
and then we have this here, which is, as you can see, not a normal shape. This is a destroyed meniscus, which is really abnormal. It has abnormal signals, really bright, and doesn't even look triangular-shaped anymore. This is what it is. It's a destroyed shock absorber. And this is even worse where you have a completely destroyed meniscus. It is not visible anymore. It's completely absent. And that's where osteoarthritis just moves on crazy. It's accelerated at that time when you don't have menisca anymore. And unfortunately, um, osteoarthritis is also something we see increasingly in younger patients. So the younger patients tend to do sometimes very aggressive sports, and that aggressive sports has implications for the joint. And this was only a 29-year-old man. But if you look at this, this is already end-stage osteoarthritis at 29. This patient needs to live another, like, at least 60 years or ideally 50, 60 years on this knee. So there's no cartilage, and as we know, cartilage does not regrow. The meniscus is destroyed. Menisci do not regrow either. And then there's a lot of bone remodeling. So, so this is really a 29 already end stage. And this is really what we have to prevent. We have to really work on this. And this is where my next part of my talk comes in, because we have to do everything we can to prevent osteoarthritis. And there are a number of things we can do. We can modify our lifestyles. We can really work actively in preventing that our joints deteriorate like this. This is uh, taken from one of our press releases about a study we did um, this year, which was published at the beginning of the year, where we looked at obesity and the impact of obesity on osteoarthritis. And we could show in that study that knee joint degeneration was actually slowed. And I want to share this study with you. Obesity is really an important thing. And we know that obesity is a modifiable risk factor for osteoarthritis. We know some studies have shown that weight loss slows osteoarthritis. We have seen that it leads to improvement of clinical symptoms. And we wanted in this study, we really wanted to see whether is there a threshold of weight you have to lose in order for it to be beneficial for your joint. So, and that's what we looked at. And that's, let me guide you a little bit through what we've done. So as an outcome measurement, we use something which is very novel, and Dr. Majumda is going to talk about this in detail. We used a molecular imaging marker, which basically measures bone um, cartilage quality. You guys are probably all familiar with DEXA. Just imagine it's like a bone mineral density of the cartilage. So it's like a molecular imaging marker that gives us an idea how good the cartilage quality is. And it includes information about the collagen and the water content. So we've looked at this, and uh, this is just um, giving you an idea what happens over time in the cartilage. And this is a color map. Um, If you have blue colors, that means you have a lot of collagen. You have not a lot of water. So this is good cartilage. And as we age over time, over eight years, there's more red which means there's more water and there's less collagen. So this is really this molecular imaging marker analyzing the cartilage quality. So 
again, what we wanted to find out is whether different degrees of weight loss give you different, have different impact on cartilage health, and we used the T2 measurement for that. We looked over four years, 48 months in these patients, and we had um, a cohort of 506 patients, and these were all obese and overweight patients. And we had a couple of different uh, cohorts. We had patients that lost 5 to 10% of weight over a period of four years. We had those that uh, lost more than 10%. And then we had those that didn't lose any weight. So this was, these were the three cohorts we were looking at. So let's have a look at our results. What happened in these cohorts over a period of four years? And when you look at this, you have, again, our three cohorts. These are the obese patients that did not change weight. These are the ones that lost 5 to 10%, and these are the ones that lost more than 10%. And what you can nicely appreciate here is that those that lost more than 10% of weight are really doing extremely well. They really didn't show any loss in cartilage quality, while those guys lost a little, little bit of cartilage quality, but these ones were the ones that lost most cartilage quality. Basically, they had most increase in T2, had the worst cartilage at the end, while these ones had the best cartilage at the end. And this is how it's shown in the, in the color map, really showing nicely. Again, what I told you, black, uh, blue is nice and good, and red is not great. And these obese patients without weight loss had a lot of red stuff here. So they really have bad quality after four years. Um, the cartilage has degenerated, while these ones that lost more than 10% actually did much better. And it was also shown when you look at the pain scores, and the pain were very similar, that the patients that lost most weight also had most relief of their pain over time. So what do we learn from that study? First of all, we learn that obese and overweight patients um, with risk factors have um, profit from weight loss and that more than 10% weight loss is really most best for them and really benefits them most significantly. But any weight loss seems to be good and any weight loss seems to be positive and try to maintain the cartilage quality. Now, the next study I want to talk about is something which is analogous to this one, which just came out. You may have seen it. It was on the news just last month, and it basically said, okay, excessive exercise may harm the heart. Um, and they had a very nice cohort and studied it extensively and found that those patients that really did incredible amounts of exercise had a shorter life expectancy. So what we did was something very similar, and we did it with looking at the joints. Um, this was something which was uh, extensively publicized a couple of years back, and I think it has an important message which I want to give you tonight to take home. We know, and Dr. Shiganti has already told us, that exercise is extremely important. It's essential for normal cartilage develop, development, but if it's excessive, it may not be so great. Um, and it's not entirely clear how does exercise impact osteoarthritis development? Is it beneficial? Is it not so beneficial? And that's something we wanted to have a look at. We wanted to find out how much exercise or how are people doing with exercise. Uh, and we looked specifically at middle-aged and older patients that didn't have any signs and symptoms of osteoarthritis at that time, but had 
risk factors. That included also, for example, obesity or overweight. So we looked at three different types of activity. So um, we looked at sedentary patients, moderate exercises, and strenuous exercises. And I'm going to give you examples just that you have a better idea what I'm talking about here. So we have these really sedentary people, these couch potatoes that don't really do much. They watch TV, they read books, play on the computer, and that's basically it. So basically zero activity. And then we have these so, uh, these individuals who actually are quite active. So they walk a lot, they're very active, they walk, they play darts, play table tennis, so they're quite active. However, it's not exaggerated, so it's only about um, it's three days or more per week, but it's less than two hours, and it's not excessive, and it's not high impact. Uh, and then we have finally this group of really strenuous exercisers, and they run, they play basketball, they play tennis, they play soccer. Now, the most important thing you take home from this is that these are patients that actually put a lot of impact on their joints, so a lot of high impact on the joints. And they do this pretty frequently. They do this more than three days a week, and they do it more than one hour per day. And these are our results, and I've already told you what's blue is as good and what's red is not so great. And when you look at these different cohorts, you can nicely appreciate that the sedentary patients are not doing well. So it's no way you should be sedentary, because that's really detrimental to the cartilage, and that leads to pretty significant deterioration of the cartilage. The strenuous exercisers also had pretty high uh, or let's say it differently, had pretty low cartilage quality, while the light and moderate exercises were really doing best. I mean, they were really having the best and the most uh, intact cartilage. So that means that it's really important to exercise. There's no question, and I'm completely agree Dr. Shaganti. Exercise is really important, but don't overdo it. Mild, moderate exercises create not super high impact, not a lot of potential injury for the joint. If you play, we see in our daily practice, we see so many soccer players and basketball players, and a lot of these active people have really very destroyed cartilage. And at a later stage, they really have significant issues with their joints. Um, and our results are really in line with the recommendations of the American Heart Association, which recommends 150 minutes per week of moderate exercise and maybe uh, 75 minutes more of more vigorous exercise. So, so this is published everywhere, and I think this is completely in line with what we found, and this is also the recommendation I give. This is, this is really healthy for the cartilage. This maintains the joint. This doesn't destroy the joint. And please keep in mind, you don't want to have too much high impact because that high impact is not necessarily good for the joint. There could be injury. And again, in our daily practice, we see a lot of injuries. And we see very young people with very high-end disease, such as the one I just showed you. Okay, finally, last couple of minutes we have, I just want to go over this new thing which I find is very intriguing. So we developed this risk score. And what we did, we looked over eight years, and we looked at these patients that developed over time. They didn't have any osteoarthritis when we looked at the baseline, but over eight years, they developed radiographic or clinical osteoarthritis. That means a lot of knee pain or 
the, those findings I just showed you, where you have all these joint space narrowing osteophytes and all this stuff, they had radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis. And then we developed that or total joint replacement, which is, of course, an end stage. And then we came up with that um, box here. And in that box, we enter the weight of the patient, the BMI. We enter RT2 values, whether they have radiographic evidence of um, uh, osteoarthritis. And all this gets in there, and then it calculates your risk score. Okay, you have a 29% risk score of forgetting osteoarthritis. And we have sort of simulated this, and we have looked at how, for example, these T2 values I've talked about and Dr. Machimna is going to talk about in much more detail really impact the risk. And you have a patient here who has really low T2, good cartilage quality. patient has moderate cartilage quality. And see how it impacts the risk. So this patient has 34%. This one goes up to more than 50, and this one ends up with 75. So, so this is a risk score which could be used, and we want to make it available also on our website to allow patients to really look at it and calculate their risk score. This is over eight years. The likelihood that I'm going to develop osteoarthritis is so and so high. So with this, I want to come to the end of my talk, and research and work together is always teamwork, and I've I've included our team here, which doesn't include you, unfortunately. Krishna, I should have included you here. That's a very bad oversight. And then, of course, the um, other thing which is really critical and important is that we have funding to conduct that research. And we have, we have been fortunate to have uh, NIH funding to conduct all these studies. Thanks so much for your attention. Thank you very much for staying for this last bit. And um, I just want to say that where I'm taking on is right after Krishna and Thomas, I'm going to talk about what are the emerging methods. And the reason for me to talk about the emerging methods to protect your knees is for those of you who have been here for the other lectures of the Mini-Med School for Precision Imaging, you've probably by now learned that there are many, many ways in the next several years that we might even prevent and stop cancer and other diseases. But what good would that be if your knees were degenerated and aching and you couldn't walk? So mobility and your knee pain is really, really critical from the perspective of the quality, from, for the quality of life. The other th reason I'm here to talk about emerging methodologies is because you already heard that there is a dearth of therapies and treatments for aching knees and osteoarthritis. And clearly, there are no obvious markers to determine to date which of these therapies are really working, because pain is a very subjective element in everybody's life. I might feel it less than others, and so on and so forth. So with that introduction, and that is why we still continue to do research and develop methods, let me begin my talk with regards to uh, osteoarthritis and looking at some of the emerging methodologies. One of the things about pain and osteoarthritis and my aching knees is that the contributors to pain are poorly understood. You've heard about all the large numbers of individuals who are affected by this disease and will be affected by the disease in the future and ultimately might end up having joints which have actually degenerated to this extent and then ultimately will have total knee replacements. But 
the issue as to what is it that contributes to the pain and what are the early signs where you can actually prevent your joint from looking like this is what I'm going to be talking about today. I just want to give you a little bit more perspective as to clearly pain is a terrible thing for the individual and we of course want to reduce pain. But the other issue is total knee replacements are going up progressively every year. In the year 2000, you had about 500,000 knee replacements per year. And then as you keep going, the numbers keep rising. And the total number of joint replacements by 2030 will reach something like four and a half million a year. So these are really large numbers. And these have some significant implications, apart from the fact that if you keep getting, as the generation is very active, you get these knee replacements early on in life, and many of these knee replacements end up having to be revised. So this is not revision surgery. This is just total initial knee replacement surgery. The impact, the economic impact of this is huge. It goes in the billions. It started off in 8.9 billion and it would be it's predicted to go up to about 50 billion even a 10 percent reduction in surgeries will have a major impact not only on healthcare costs but the estimated impact on the patient's quality of life is going to be huge so the reality is that treating knee pain early on or catching the reasons and the contributors to knee pain and joint degeneration early on will have a huge impact the patient's quality of life as well as the economics of this nation. So my focus is to address imaging, precision imaging techniques, uh, emerging precision imaging methods that will ultimately reduce the number of knee replacements. And the way I want to address this is we want to be looking at early markers of joint degeneration. You've heard about exercise, you've heard about modification, you've heard about preventive therapies. The issue is you want to know early on Is your joint degenerating? And even if you have a therapeutic intervention, is it actually impacting the tissues within your joint as a result of the intervention? So that's where my research is going to focus on. You've seen these images of the knee joint, and you can see we've talked about this earlier. Um, Both Krishna and Thomas have told you that osteoarthritis in your aching knee, your aching knee is as a result of multiple tissues in the joint. There's the meniscus, which is the tissue between the uh, bone and the the two cartilage faces. The bone itself is reactive and undergoes remodeling changes. And then, of course, you have the cartilage. I just wanted to reorient you with this knee image and the fact that I want to be talking a little bit about some of the methods that Thomas already introduced and some of the cartilage compositional uh, components that Krishna introduced. So you heard that cartilage consists of water, collagen, and this um, proteoglycan components. The earliest signs of cartilage degeneration is loss of the proteoglycans and the increase in the hydration of the cartilage. Followed followed after that is the disorganization of the collagen structure, which gives the cartilage its tensile strength to some extent. And looking at T1 row and T2 maps, 
These are two different parameters. T1 rho reflects the proteoglycan loss, and T2 is the cartilage loss that Thomas already in, uh, introduced. You can look at early-stage cartilage changes. Late-stage cartilage changes are seen in MR images such as this, which Thomas showed you earlier as well, where you see nice, uh, uh, well-defined cartilage. You also see the bone itself. There's the femur and the tibia to orient those of you who are not so familiar with it. And these are signs of osteoarthritis and osteophytes. The healthy joint and the uh, osteoarthritic joint looks very different. There's a loss of cartilage. The bone can be eroded away. The meniscus may be gone and so on. So what does imaging do? What does magnetic resonance imaging do? Surely it does re reflect the later stages of osteoarthritis where you've got morphological changes occurring in the joint, the thinning of the cartilage in certain areas. It, it can also show you muscle composition and size because muscle strength does contribute to uh, joint instability and impact uh, impacts osteoarthritic joints. It can also tell you about the bone shape, but these are really longer term morphological changes. The early stages of cartilage and meniscus degeneration are reflected by these early biochemical changes of those tissues, the loss of the proteoglycan, the loss of the collagen, and T1 rho and T2 mapping are two different ways in magnetic resonance imaging that you can start assessing these early changes. The other change that really occurs in a uh, shorter time scale is bone remodeling. Bone is actually a very active cellular or uh, uh, cellular tissue and it remodels based on mechanical loading by other stimuli and there is a combination methodology or an imaging methodology called PET-MR which uses positron em emission tomography combined with magnetic resonance, which can actually start showing you the remodeling of bone as well as the cartilage changes. So I'm basically introducing the concept that in the future, there will be multiple modalities, imaging modalities, which could be combined to detect early changes in the joint, both the cartilage, the meniscus, the bone and its remodeling in order to understand what are the contributors to pain and if therapy is modifying any of the tissue degeneration that might be, have been occurring. So I want to start talking a little bit about, T let's pick just T1 row for this uh, uh, discussion. The question is, I've talked about these biochemical changes like T1 row and the question that I would be asked every time is, do these measures actually show differences between those that have osteoarthritis and those that don't have osteoarthritis? Osteoarthritis is defined by the radiographic or the X-ray images that you just saw. And this is a difference map, and you can see these. this reflects sort of large differences in certain regions. This is basically the femur you're looking at, and there's the patella bone. You can see that we looked at two cohorts of individuals, and T1 row actually actually does show differences between osteoarthritic subjects and non-osteoarthritic subjects. T2 also does the same, but I'm just showing you the data from T2, uh, T1 row. The other thing that we found is greater the degeneration, i.e. higher the T1 row and, or greater the degeneration or the loss of proteoglycan. We looked at pain in these individuals and we looked at a map of how the pain related to the T1 row, and we found regions of very, very moderate to good correlation between co pain and the loss of proteoglycan or T1 
T1 row increase in degeneration. So these markers, which are early markers, have actually been related to the state of pain of the knee joint. And if you can actually map it, you can actually see where are the regions where the T1 row or this degeneration is showing the best relationship or association with pain. So you're beginning to target, I wouldn't say the localization of the pain, but where the degeneration is the greatest and where you're act, uh, you know, and how does that relate to pain? Now, when you walk, it's great to have, do exercise, and walking is great exercise, but there are ways you can join, load your joint in such a way that you're putting more stress. For example, in this case, we'll look at patellar stress. We did a study where we looked at individuals and while they were walking and measured the load in their joints and then calculated the stress on the patella. And one of the things that we found in these individuals after we imaged them that greater the degeneration or greater the T1 row or the loss of proteoglycan, higher was the patellofemoral stress in those individuals when they were walking. Now, this makes perfect sense, right? Imagine if you had a, a, a fruit, let's just take a peach, for example, and as the peach is getting riper and riper, maybe some of the uh, uh, connective uh, peach fibers, etc., you're losing it, it's becoming juicier, it's getting more hydrated. Now, if you continue to actually put back these peaches in such a way that they're getting a lot of mechanical loading, you will find that essentially more and more of the, there is a breakdown of the fibers themselves, and then you actually have potentially its degeneration to some extent when it goes beyond being ripe. So it's a very similar, it, this makes sense, but this is an actual objective way of looking at is the stress actually causing early degeneration in certain regions of the cartilage. What could be done in these cases? There, are, there have been some suggestions that you can modify the way you walk, whether you uh, basically uh, uh, extend your, you know, whether you're basically walking pigeon-toed or you're uh, not, and an external rotation of your foot, is that more beneficial? So these are studies which are ongoing. So from an individual patient perspective, could you retrain yourself very early on to not put those loads? And this is what brings us to all the devices that Krishna talked about, the lateral foot wedge, the walking. And if you do exercise, are you really doing damage because of the way you're exercising? So essentially, stance makes a huge difference in terms of loading of the joint. Let's talk a little bit about PET imaging. I don't know whether you heard about this in many med school, but by injecting a radioisotope and then taking images, the uptake of an isotope is actually reflected by how quickly the bone is changing or remodeling. And remodeling is actually mediated by mechanical loads and this way, you can see real spots where you have high remodeling, and you can quantify how quickly the radioisotope's been taken up, how much has been taken up. And this reflects bone blood flow and remodeling. Another marker, very early marker of osteoarthritic activity. So the question is, okay, if you're, if you're going to go into looking at bone remodeling, the question is you have to ask yourself, is there an association with pain? And is there an association, if my bone is remodeling, will my cartilage re degenerate? And will I then have pain thereafter? So these are the questions we've sort of started to answer. Let's just focus on this particular 
particular slide or look at this bone. Uh, we are looking at the patella, which is your kneecap, and this is uh, uh, the uptake, the uh, uh, uptake rate. So Ki is the uptake rate of the radioisotope, and you can see high values of the uptake rate in this individual, and this person had pain versus no pain. We did this in a whole range of individuals, and what we found is really there were strong correlations between the uptake and pain in these individuals. So that's a very, very positive sign that we are actually seeing early markers of osteoarthritic and degenerating change, degenerative changes in the knee, and we are finding some correlations with pain. So the question is, what, what happens when you actually start looking at association with, in these two individuals with pain and no pain of these bone changes with the changes in cartilage biochemistry? So I show you, uh, let me just show you, draw your attention to this patellar region again. You see strong correlations, which are in red. You also see strong correlations in blue, but they're heading towards the other side. So what it's basically saying is that the relationship between bone and cartilage changes that are occurring in individuals may not always be linear. There might be shifts in the way the bone is being loaded that you might have very high bone turnover, but another region might be unloaded in such a way that you actually have your cartilage doesn't degenerate quite so fast, whereas another region which is being loaded really does degenerate faster. So there are clear interactions in this three-dimensional unit, that is your joint, where the bone and the cartilage are sort of working in unison and potentially giving rise to the pain in your knee. So precision imaging in aching knees allows precise localization of some early osteoarthritic changes in cartilage and bone. There are some associations that exist with pain. They exist with joint loading and joint stress. So now I've talked to you about what happens and we want to do, detect osteoarthritis very early on. What if it hasn't been detected that early on, and maybe in a population uh, study, we actually find that we need to do this in patients who have progressed beyond. So Thomas Link showed you all of the features that they look at, the loss of cartilage, the total loss of cartilage, etc. And these features in an MR image are meticulously looked at by the clinical radiologists, and they pick it up and the issue here, the question that I have to ask you is, is there a way we can precisely stage whether this lesion is progressing? And are there some lesions that are better indicators for total knee replacement? Because a lot of people have lesions in their knee. Some may or may not progress. From an individual perspective, is there a way we can do that? You've probably been here for the artificial intelligence session, which basically is a computerized method to take a large amount of data and actually use imaging data to train an algorithm so that when the algorithm, the computer algorithm, sees features such as that, it can actually start predicting which category 
the um, image falls into. So this was artificial intelligence two lectures ago, I think, that you, uh, that you heard about. So we are looking at artificial intelligence techniques, methodologies to train the computer algorithm to find the cartilage, to find the meniscus, to find the bone and the ligaments, and then after finding it, to assess the lesions that are present. So if you have a training set which identifies these lesions, you can train the algorithm to find these lesions. What would that do for us? Well, if we could detect osteoarthritis early and predict the combination of factors that may lead to knee replacements later, we could treat people and reduce the pain and the number of knee replacements. This is the logic. So if you had all of these features which you found and you knew that you've got long-term data on some individuals who had these early signs and many years later went in for total knee replacement, then if you got a test person came in with knee pain and asked the doctor, the doctor could potentially use such an algorithm to say, okay, let's see, where does this individual fall? Does it fall in the category of early OA and no OA. If, it fall, if this person's uh, factors, risk factors, as well as the imaging features, fall in this early osteoarthritis category many years later, did these features lead to total knee replacement or did they not lead to total knee replacement? So with the combination of some of this precise imaging with some of the demographic factors that were already alluded to before, you could really train an artificial intelligence network to start doing this kind of analysis. And what would that do for us? What it would do for us is it would basically enable us to combine all of the demographic information. And I haven't talked about genetics yet. There are databases where genetics are also included. We could include all of these features and come up with the predictive what if, answer to what if. What if you could detect early osteoarthritis? What if you could predict whether your aching knee would 30, 40 years down the road make you a candidate for total knee replacement? I think that's what the holy grail is all about. And if you could do that and insert the treatment and therapy options here as they come by, I think that would be the answer and we'd have found the holy grail at that point. So we are on our way to understanding the cause of the aching knee. We want to detect osteoarthritis early and predict the combination of factors which makes people get knee replacements later on in life. What do we need to get there? Clearly, imaging research, we need computational power, we need a lot of people with very diverse skills and a lot of collaboration. And with that, thank you very much. And I guess I'm in charge of asking for uh, questions from the audience. Okay. Uh, the question is that we're talking about prevention. So with prevention, are we talking about uh, screening patients before they get pain? So for the early markers of osteoarthritis, if you could see the joint degeneration, the tissue degeneration with some of these markers, such as T1 row and T2, it would be a good way if it was proven that it was really a model as for early, uh, being an early biomarker, we could potentially be considering it as an early screening tool, should it come to that. Thomas has an answer to that. So, you might want to come back yeah. here. Um, th this is a very good question. This is, uh, I really like your question. Now, um, what we know, however, is that certain patients are more prone for osteoarthritis than others. For example, if you're overweight, 
For example, if you have little Hebridean nodes on your hands, if you have a relative who has osteoarthritis bad with total joint replacement. So there are a number of risk factors. If you have an injury, for example, which is two days, which makes you basically not able to do what you want for two days. So, so there are very strict criteria, which we do have. So we could basically say, okay, so are you a candidate for potential osteoarthritis? Do you have this, 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 and this risk factor? And that would allow us already before you develop pain, tell us, okay, this patient may be more a candidate and should have the knees looked at. Does that make sense? Yeah, thanks. Please go ahead. Yeah. So this is a question for Dr. Shakanti, but I'll repeat the question. Um, so we need to have an idea of whether certain medications, and hope, correct me if I'm not interpreting it correctly, that they are actually effective and prevent pain, and how we know that these medications are effective. Is this correct? Alternative. Alternative medications are effective. Specifically, I mentioned turmeric and a bunch of other. I was specifically yeah. thinking yeah. about acupuncture. Yeah. Um, so just to be clear, so you were asking, how do we know if they actually work for pain? Yeah, so I think um, we have, you know, there are different levels of evidence, and I think that at this point there are not, to my knowledge, very large, you know, randomized, controlled, blinded studies looking at that question. I think it would be a hard study to do just in terms of how to blind somebody to do acupuncture. But um, but it could be done, and it needs to be done. I think that part of the the incentive for OSHA centers is to kind of bring this this whole area of complementary medicine into the academic world and look at it more rigorously. But anecdotally, I think it's 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 helpful for some patients. I think it's ver- there are a lot of variables there, including very operator dependent. Yeah. So um, the question was about loading of the knee, how this is effective, and and. Very good point, because uh, we've talked about high impact and how high impact is potentially damaging for the cartilage. As you use poles, you're going to reduce the high impact on the joint, which is definitely um, important and should be biomechanically very good for the joint. Okay, we have more questions. Sorry, I think you have had a question long, a long time. Can- you, um, okay, how does chondroitin sulfate impact the joint? It's Krishna. Yeah, that is a very good question. <laughs> um, I don't think we truly understand um, the way in which it's thought to be beneficial. Um, some of the hypotheses include that because chondroitin is a component of cartilage, that it is in some way nourishing or replacing perhaps that cartilage. Um, n- no, I would say it has not been shown that it does. Yeah, I think there are, again, more sophisticated imaging techniques and some large databases that are looking at some of these questions, but as of now, I, I haven't changed my practice to recommend it wholeheartedly. Yeah. Can, can I say something? Just um, Sorry. Um, we, we do inject these chondroitin sulfates into the joint as lubricants, and this, there have been a number of studies, and they showed sometimes favorable results. Basically, coming back to my analogy with the cars, it's like putting oil into the joint to make it last longer. So these have been um, working sometimes. Sometimes they have been working not so well, but it's definitely something we do. Also in radiology, we inject a number of these into the knee joint, and we have sometimes pretty good results. 
Um, I think you, sorry, sorry, you were in the back first, and then you, you're on the next question. Please go ahead. Yeah. Do you want to um, uh, yeah, just repeat the question? the question? So, I'm sorry. So, I think your question was you were individually told to stay away from capsaicin? Oh, in the, yeah. So, that's, um, actually, it's in some of the recommendations. Um, I don't personally find the, the evidence very strong for it, and I've had patients who've had more trouble from the discomfort of the capsaicin. I think it's very individual. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think some patients find it very helpful, but um, again, it's it's more of an analgesic sort of approach. It's not something that's truly modifying um, for the for the joint itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the question was, um, why if if glucosamine and chondroitin are not recommended, are they so ubiquitously promoted? And I think that's the difference between sort of evidence and marketing, really. Um, so, I mean, I think, again, there may be changes in what I say based on better studies that are, have more sensitive techniques. And the veterinary world is different. I can't speak to that so much, but I know that there's a very different take on that. And the, uh, some of those methods have been tried to be used in human patients with varying levels of success. But it's still just not strong enough evidence by, by good, well-designed studies. Okay, you go ahead, okay, the question is, is there something like synthetic cartilage um, instead of replacing the whole knee? Um, I think I can answer the question because we see a lot of cartilage repair procedures. Um, this is done usually in young patients. So if you have a young patient that has a cartilage defect of a certain size, it's usually not bigger than one to two centimeters, then um, cartilage repair procedures are relatively effective. So there are different types. There's one, for example, where you have a little scaffold and you put little cartilage cells into the scaffold and then you use it like a carpet and you put it into these defects. That has worked okay. It's not super, but it has been used. And there's also something which is called microfracture, where you put poke little holes into the bone and then there's bone marrow, which is coming out of these little holes, and it will fill the defect, and it will produce something which is not hyaline cartilage, but it's like a fibrocartilage, which is relatively stable. It, but it's not done in older patients. The older patients do not regenerate as well, so that's why in older patients you have still total joint replacement, but in younger patients, if you're 20, 30 or so, and have relatively focal defect, cartilage repair is pretty frequently done and is relatively effective. Okay, we have more questions. So I think you were next. So the question was, what do you do after you've tried Tylenol and anti-inflammatories, then what's left, right? So I think hopefully um, it's clear that there are different tiers of therapy. So, for example, um, in between sort of joint replacement and just anti-inflammatories, there are some of these visco-supplementations that um, Thomas alluded to where you are sort of injecting... um, um, hyaluronic acid or derivatives into the joint. Cortisone shots have a role in both improving function, at least temporarily, and reducing pain. Um, and uh, opioids are kind of a last resort, at least in my mind. I think there's a lot of downsides to that. Um, and there are other modalities of pain relief. I mean, there's things like uh, duloxetine or Cymbalta. So there's many different approaches to how to deal with pain. But And the reason we talk about pain so much is it's, it's often tied to function in the sense of being able to move around better when you're in less discomfort. Yeah, um, the question is about repetitive stress and how that affects joints. 
and the biomechanics of it. Um, so, so we've done a number of studies where we looked at people walking up and down the stairs and how many stairs when it gets problematic. And we found that for the knee specifically that there's an association. So, for example, people who do a lot of, during work, a lot of bending carry heavy boxes go up and down the stairs. They have tend to have more problems with their knee joints and have more better, less uh, the cartilage quality in these patients was not as good. We haven't looked a lot at the hip. I know that there are studies ongoing where we're also trying to understand the biomechanics of the hip. Shimala, are you aware of any studies which which has been doing that would address the issue? Not repetitive, not yeah. repetitive stress. You're not talking about the wrist joint, but the looks of it and uh, no, not for the oh. I mean, people have, I mean, there is cartilage degeneration, but I think that initially the repetitive movement is more inflammatory. The question is, can biomarkers prevent total joint replacement if you look at them very early on and you could decide, okay, this is the risk. And this is what, what we've tried to do um, when, when, when we did this risk model. So we had patients that went on to total joint replacement, and then we looked at, okay, what, what are the predictors of that this patient is developing total joint replacement? Now, the interesting part about the total joint replacement is that we were surprised how, let's say, how non, to put it politely, how non-rigorous patients are undergoing total joint replacement. Some, some patients had beautiful knee joints and underwent, suddenly they had a total joint replacement. And so it's very, very unclear, and it's not really rigorous how patients are chosen to have total joint replacement. And that, of course, makes it sometimes complicated. But I love your approach. It has, this is how we have to do it. We have to develop biomarkers that can early on say, okay, you're at risk for total joint replacement and you have to do something about it. Okay. And I think here, here. Mm. So the question is about partial knee replacement and what are the um, benefits and the risks about that. Um, we see increasing amounts that only the part of the joint, like the medial or the lateral joint compartment, is removed. And, um, and this... Um, um, this depends on a couple of things. Um, first of all, your other compartment has to be really intact and really good, good in shape. So the cartilage of the other compartment, which we see not infrequently. So then only the medial, most of the time it's the medial compartment, so the medial side which is replaced. So we see that more frequently, but it, the surgery is a little more complicated and you need somebody who's a really good surgeon to do this. Um, I've seen a lot of really good results, um, but there are strict criteria, so you have to have really good cartilage on the other side. They're also sometimes doing just comp um, replacements of the femoropatellar joint, but that's not so frequently. Okay, okay so question is... Um, we understand that there are problems with corticosteroids, that over time corticosteroids will really destroy the joint. But what's the story with um, lubricants uh, which are injected? A and I think that what we know is that, that the lubricants can be used more frequently and have less um, negative impact on the joint compared to corticosteroids. Corticosteroids do limit 
the inflammation, so they really reduce the inflammation. We do them extremely frequently, and they are very effective. But we know also, and that's the study I think you wanted to mention later on, Krishna, is that over time these patients deteriorate much quicker and actually de- deteriorate quicker than... That's a very important question, and I didn't have time to talk about it, but there's a very well-publicized JAMA article that came out earlier this year um, that did show, you know, by looking at, I think it was cartilage volume um, by MRI, a a change, an association in a group that had every three months sort of like clockwork cortisone shots compared to a a saline placebo group. but I think an important thing in that study, because we've discussed this at length in our group, certainly, is is there was, yes, a statistically significant difference between the two groups in terms of cartilage volume loss, but is that a clinically significant, clinically meaningful change is not clear. And actually, I think in, in evaluating that study, what we all kind of concluded as a rheumatology group is that you want to be judicious, again, and when you use cortisone, you don't want to just do it blindly every three months. And it has a very important role um, if it's al- allowing that patient, again, to do that moderate exercise that Thomas outlined versus just being the couch potato and sedentary and getting stiffer and, and um, losing muscle mass. So I think there's a balance there. So I don't think it... Hmm, sorry, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Hyaluronic acid. Yes. Yeah, I'm not aware of any studies looking at. Are you homes with MRI outcomes with visco supplementation and cartilage? Maybe you can address that. I'm, I'm we're not. we're currently doing one, <laughs> but, but I don't know the results yet. I don't know the results yet. So we look at at changes in cartilage, and um, again, um, the studies that have been done so far and published on on these lubricants have been quite promising. Uh, there have been some which have been. Not so great, but some have really shown some pretty good results. So at, at least it's always something, it's not damaging to the joint. It's not as damaging as corticosteroids potentially. So I think, again, it may be worth a try. But I, I, Krishna is the rheumatologist, so I should... Do. Yeah, I will say we don't do it first. We tend to use the cortisone first. Yeah. And orthopedics likes the visco supplementation more than rheumatologists. Yeah. Okay, we have one last question, and then, sorry, and we will stay here. We'll, we'll answer your question in person. But one last question, please, and then we have to, yeah. So the question was, what's inflamed in osteoarthritis? Um, so uh, I can address that. Um, so we've always thought that um, many years that osteoarthritis is just wear and tear, and it doesn't have anything to do with inflammation. Uh, we have learned over the last... 10 or so years, that um, as the cartilage breaks down, as there are products in the joint, um, there's also increasing inflammation. So the synovium, which is the, the, the skin of, of the capsule, basically, gets inflamed. It gets really hypervascularized. It gets thickened. It, gets, um, it produces a lot of fluid. That's why a lot of patients tend to have large joint effusions. So we now know um, that probably the driver of osteoarthritis is not just wear and tear, but it's some underlying inflammation in the joint, which really makes it worse. And that's theoretically why, to some extent, corticosteroids may be helpful. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.